Welcome to episode two of Misery, where Paul gives misery new legs. Oh, I don't even need to like record another one. That's perfect. Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock with your hosts Kim Payne and Otto Mullen. So here at First Time Through, we really wanted to make the podcast a little bit more accessible for everyone. So what we're going to do is at the beginning, uh, have a fun little segment, just 30 seconds long, where I try to give you the story of what we're dissecting today. So that way you can feel like you are here with us, even if you're not mentally here with us. All right, 30 second barebone history starts now. Annie is going to lose her mind. She's going to go to her laughing place. She's going to come back. She's going to burn Paul's manuscript. Paul's going to drink his own pee. She's going to decide that he needs to bring misery back from the dead. So she's going to go get a typewriter, bring it back to him, but the paper isn't going to be good enough. So she's going to have to go get more paper. And while she goes to get the paper, Paul's going to find a bobby pin. And then he's going to use that bobby pin to sneak out. And like then, then we're going to just talk a lot about that. So let's go. Well, it's interesting to me, too, because it's like, she's obviously, she has a coping mechanism, and she knows what her coping mechanism is, but she obviously doesn't use it every time, and she doesn't have an outside coping mechanism. So, you know, it's good to have a coping mechanism like that. In fact, like, I think it's really good of her to, like, know that, like, I need to separate myself and go somewhere else for now. I think that's really strong, and I know I struggle with that as a person sometimes. But if that's your only coping mechanism in every situation is to walk away and go somewhere else, very rarely are you able to resolve anything peacefully. Right. I think it's really telling that his response is not. What about food? What about something to drink? What about, what about, what about? It's... Will you be back to give me my medication? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, he talks about that he knows that he's addicted, but he says it there. He knows that she has been giving him enough pain meds I think that he's hooked. 100%. I think even Stephen King's trying to tell us that because he says, will you be back to give me my medication? He asked, alarmed. Mm-hmm. And I think that alarmed is alarmed in two ways. One, alarmed Annie's leaving. But two, he's probably a little alarmed at himself about how he's how hooked he is in that moment. Right. He's probably a little surprised that, like, like you're saying, that's his first thought. Right. It's not, you know, it'll be dinner time soon, or, you know, what if I have to go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 that alcoholic's thought of like, that, I'm on my last five dollars. Do I eat or do I go buy another bottle of whiskey tonight? Right. Right. Oof. That was good. That was a good observation. I really like that. And then she's gone for uh, three days almost. Or two and a half days. And a, 51 hours. Mm-hmm. 51 hours. Could you, like, 51 hours. This man's in so much pain he can't fall asleep. And he, he, his pelvis is crushed. So whenever he uses any of the muscles in his body to pee, it hurts. And just every hour is that pain medication wearing off a little bit more and a little bit more and him knowing that he can't even get up like you're stuck in this bed trapped and it's not even that too it's another like factor of the unknown you're trapped you have no idea where you are you don't even know like what room of this house you're in like you can probably see that he's on the first floor like so he knows that much information and you can see that red barn out the window Mm -hmm. but that's but that's it it and that's terrifying. It's there's it's the only parallel you can draw is being in jail, like truly, like you know, being I, in jail after you've been blindfolded well, even. And and I actually honestly, jail wouldn't even be scarier. Jail would be less scary than this because situation. you would know where it was known. You would know it, and you'd probably also know when you were getting out of jail. Which for this, he has no he, he, he has just no concept. He's like this is just where I am yeah. now. And and I mean just for a. a also, we've been talking minor for an hour sense now. for a minor sense of the disorientation. Um, in 2007, I went to Thailand, and we my flight left San Francisco at like 10:15 p.m. So I took some sleeping medicine so that I could sleep on the plane, and I woke up, and it was com- completely dark, of course, because it's night. There's no frame of reference and it's 2007 so I don't have a cell phone I don't have 
My watch is set to Evansville time. I'm somewhere over the Pacific. There's no reference of anything. You know, I, I can look out the window and all I can see is black. There's no clocks. There's no movie. There's no tracker to tell you where you are in your flight path. There's nothing. So I didn't know when I, in a metal can over the ocean with no sense of where I was or when I was. Had we crossed the international dateline yet? Were you in a different day? Was I in a different day? It's just, it's a very disorienting feeling. And, and that was intentional. So to be trapped in a situation where you don't know where you are or when it is, because she hasn't changed the calendar. You know when you left the hotel, but you don't know how long you were passed out. You don't know how long, you, you have no concept of when, well, and then, where, or if anybody's even looking for you. It, it, just this complete disconnect from all touch points of reality. And the only other person that knows who you are, where you are, when you are, all of those things, just left. Left and said, I'll be back eventually. So you hope that they're coming back but it's still winter you can see that it's still winter outside Mm -hmm. and you know how you ended up here is because you had a car wreck i don't think he remembers he has a car wreck for a couple of days either Uh, i think that's like probably terrifying either because i think that in chapter six i think she talked about it yeah she well she told him about him like i think that's her saying like this happened to you Mm -hmm. and that triggers all those memories to come back in that moment i think that's why he writes it that way Mm -hmm. is like so segmented because he is taking in the information that annie's giving him but simultaneously he has that other information coming out too um and i think that immediately made me think of like he was drunk drunk like he wasn't a little drunk he said he was he had drank like two bottles of champagne in the car right. while he was driving at that point. Right. Like Yay, he... drunk driving in the eighties. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um so it's and he remembered going through like a fast food place and he was drunk at by the time he went mm-hmm. through the fast food place and then he started going up the mountains drinking right. more. Right. So I can only imagine by the time he actually got in that accident, he was drunk drunk. Which there honestly might be a is chance... probably what saved his life. He was so relaxed he that was he was so able relaxed to just be thrown around. It just There's... happened. I think that you're right. Like, that must be, like, why only we see damage on the top half. Because he bottom must half. have... Bottom half. Yeah, excuse me. The bottom top half. <laughs> top half. <laughs> but that's why we only see the damage on the bottom half is because, like, his top half was probably... He probably wasn't seatbelt. Oh, no. Didn't have a seatbelt. Gosh, belt, no. For sure. No. For sure, no seatbelt. Yeah. And I think it's, you know... It's interesting, too, like, if his car really was as far off the road as Annie says it was, or if she pushed it further off the road afterwards to make sure that nobody else could see him. Well, they, she does talk about that later. Yeah, and she goes and does that even more right, later right. and pushes it even further, further right. in. Well, but there was a snowstorm, remember? And mm-hmm. so the, the snow plow covered his car. Oh, when, so it definitely like, was just on like, the side of the road there for a while, but right. it had like a six-inch snow, or, or like a six-foot six foot snow bank over right. it. And, and honestly, again, we live in the Midwest. We don't live in the mountains. So, you know, I know that when we get snow here the snow plows leave three, four, five foot drifts of snow. But mm-hmm. we're talking a mountain blizzard. So those piles of snow could be 20 feet. Well, and I know like just from living in Michigan, right? When we would have like big snowstorms like that, like snowstorms that would cancel schools for like four or five days in a row. In those snowstorms, you wouldn't have one plow truck coming through either. Right. You would have multiple every hour. Mm-hmm. So if this is like that big sidewinder, like main drag road going uh, up the mountains and then down to the main town, it's probably the most important road that they keep safe. Right. So they probably have a plow truck going through it like at least like, every hour or at two. At least every hour. So it's like just every time too, more and more snow is getting piled on top of it because there's right. car and everything right. too. And think about how long that snow takes to melt. Especially that high up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because it's already, like he says, it's like February or March, like at the start of the book. So it's we like think. it's already, right. like, we think. Right. So it's like it's already probably near the end of winter. It's starting to turn into spring in that area, too. Because they talk about but how spring this, comes real late in the mountain, that high up in the mountains. Later on, they talk, too, about how she specifically moves the car to where the spring runoff is. Right. So that way it so pushes, it pushes the car it further downhill. away. Yep. Which yeah. is really interesting and clever, too, I think, of her. And I think the only reason that she knows it is because she did it on accident the first time. Right. I don't think she did it on purpose. That, like, she says she didn't do it on purpose the first time. Because right. she's like, right. I, would, I never thought he would go that far away. It was perfect. Exactly. You know, how he survives. He even says, 
here in chapter 14 How that he drinks his own pee. He, drink, he had to urinate. He laid the top sheet over his penis, hoping to create a crude filter and urinated through it into his cupped hands. You know, he knew. The survival instinct is so strong. He tried to think of it as recycling. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but his survival instinct is so strong. Even at the very beginning, his survival instinct is so strong. You know, and, and what would he have done if she was gone even longer? So when she comes back, it he, he says, she must be a dream. But then reality, or mere brute survival, took over. And he began to moan and beg and plead. Then he also says, her color was high, and her eyes sparkled with life and vivacity. She was as close to pretty as Annie Wilkes could ever be. Makes me think, like, how long has it been since she's been to her laughing place then? Right. Also, how much of that is accurate, and how much of that is withdrawals? And actually seeing the woman who is about to take away the pain. Right. And I think that, like, you know, like, that one phrase there could really be, like, that's why he starts seeing her as a goddess. Right. And he starts calling her goddess in his own mind. And, like, all of these things. And I think that's why he ends up writing about a goddess, to be honest. Like, I think that's why. I think so, too. I think that's why Africa and goddess, like, the moment that he says it in the first, like, five or six chapters, when, like. He's talking about the the bird. mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, constantly, like course he's thinking about misery returns of course they're trying to escape and go to africa because that's all he's been thinking about is Is this this caged bird escaping and going to africa yep yep and then the goddess idol that he has to appease while they're in africa and there's a lot of parallels in the book that he's writing Mm -hmm. based on his life and i think that that's the thing too like what we've been trying to like illustrate is that like i think that's going to be something that we see is very obvious about steve is that he is a writer who parallels his own life in weird and odd ways. Right, right. Not uh, entirely, obviously, but there will be things that will stick out that will be like, ooh. I'm sure that it is not based on any part of his own life, except maybe, like, living in a small town. Right. That's probably real. But also, I doubt he was like, yeah, one time when I was a kid, there was an alien clown, and I had to beat it up. (laughs) And then we all had an orgy. I can't wait to read that book. I'm very excited to read it. And it's funny, too, because it's like I almost read it after I saw the second part of that movie. Just I'm so I glad was like, you did I wanted though. to read it, but I didn't because it was giant. I was like, mm. Intimidating. I could read like six other books in that time. <laughs> but, but we'll get there. Now I'll have a reason to read it. Now exactly. you have a reason. I'm excited yeah. to read The Shining and Doctor Sleep, too. Like, yes. That'll be a good one. Yeah. Torrent our, series. Our, com- our, our coming agenda, the, the first few months here... We, we I, should I'm make pretty a, excited. We should make a little video of, like, not video, but, like, maybe a, like, schedule podcast. Yeah. Like, a, just, like, a small, like, trailer. And just be like, hey, this is what we have planned for the next couple of months. I right. hope you're ready. I excited. hope you're ready. Read along with us. We just wanted to take a moment here at First Time Through and truly thank you for listening. Um, Kim and I have made this sort of a passion project just because we both love to read and we love to dissect things uh, and get almost probably too analytical about things but it means the world to us that you're listening so thank you um we have a couple of patrons that we want to honor they were our first four patrons in fact and they were our patrons before our first episode so a quick thank you to don Payne, paula rager ronnie jonah and brad elliott without you we truly wouldn't believe in ourselves as much as we do now And honestly, now our confidence might be a little annoying. We also want to take this time to just uh, give you a little bit of updates about the podcast and what we're trying to do and evolve. Um, We are trying to really listen to what you have to say, uh, especially regarding accessibility, uh, formula, platforms. So if you have anything, please, please, please. And if you think I'm wrong or if you think Kim's wrong, if you think anything, please tell us. We want to talk to you. You can get a hold of us at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call my personal number, 812-111-3191.
So I think the next oh. big thing that happens is that she does the thing with the grill. Yeah. 100% is, yeah, literally page chapter 18. Chapter 18. So I think it's interesting, too, because it's like, she comes in. She's like, you killed my favorite character. You hurt me personally. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing she does is try to hurt him personally. Absolutely. Like, yeah. immediately. There's no, like, hesitation. It's, she came back an hour later. Yeah, like immediately. She didn't even have to think real hard about it. And that she had, well, I mean, I guess a lot of people would have a grill and lighter Especially fluid. Especially that far out. Like, yeah. I feel like that's not that. Like, yeah, I feel like that's not that. Unusual. Also, foreshadowingly important that, like, she has all of that stuff, too. Right. Very important. Very important. Mm-hmm. Foreshadowing. <laughs> and she also has the manuscript for Paul's newest book, Fast Cars. Yeah. This is the book that he was so excited that he finished. He went on a drunken binge, withdrew a couple thousand dollars from his bank account with the goal of driving to Vegas to go blow it all because he was so excited he'd finally finished this piece. Yep. And Annie goes, you know, I read it, didn't really like it a lot, so uh, we're going to burn it. And she doesn't say, I want, I'm going to burn it. She doesn't do any of it. She hands him the matches and makes him burn the first page the last page and nine pairs of pages from various points in the manuscript because nine she said was a power number of power and nine doubled was lucky again he is destroying this part of himself this huge part of himself and it's, it's somebody else is forcing him to it's right. just like it's like well, if we're looking at this abusive relation parallel, you know, the first step is, you know, I'm taking care of you. I'm doing all of these things for you, like make you feel like you're dependent on me. Then isolate you. And she leaves for 51 hours, just completely isolated. You don't have that person that was taking care of you anymore. Oh, no. What are you going to do? She immediately comes back and she is like, if you want me to be taking care of you again, you have to change who you are because you're actually the problem. Right. And it's like, she, she comes in and she's like, how could you write this dirty book? It's got swearing, like, the first, like, three words are uh, F this and F that. And, like, I just thought you were a different, I thought you were a better person than that, Paul. It, it's textbook, like, isolate, manipulate. Absolutely. It is. And, it, it, and it's, and he does it because he knows. It's this sense of self-survival. It it's self-preservation to, it's in those self-preservation moments. It's self-preservation in those Because if you don't, you're going to make her mad. And right. if you make and, her mad, and she already showed, she, she just left him. Because I don't think, and he hasn't. He hasn't at this point, he eat. hasn't done the like soup and like the water part, right? right? Yeah. No, so like, she, he doesn't he's actually. A, I think that's the thing too. Is it's like from the moment that he meets her, he's terrified of her. Mm-hmm. But she hasn't done anything to him yet, except just right. leave. But he knows. But he like, there's something off about her from the moment that she introduces himself. And maybe it's because he has that, like, subconscious, like, news story that he keeps remembering. And that's why, like, oh, maybe that's why Steve does it. He gives us this bit. And he's like, this is something that's in his mind. But he can't remember why. He has no idea why. But it's there. And it is informing his decisions right now. I think that's why Stephen King tells us, too. Absolutely. And he's like... Just don't forget this piece of information exists. Right. It's there. It's there. It's and like, there. It does exactly what it does for Paul, what it does for us. Mm-hmm. Constantly just like, why? What is this? Why am I so scared of this woman? Right. Because all she's done is... Irrationally scared of her. Irrationally scared, too. Because all she's done up to this point is... Rescue him from a car rescue wreck. Rescue him from a car wreck. Now, Get him addicted on it drugs. It is weird. It is weird. But she hasn't done anything to him yeah I mean nothing nothing that she's done so far seems malicious right none of it's an attack right right it's weird and it's not how a rational person would react especially to like that kind of situation right but it's not blatantly too far out of the ordinary right I I get what you're saying. It's not too far out of the ordinary, so it's not causing as much alarm as it should, but it's far enough out of the ordinary that there is this sense of self-preservation and alarm. Right. Right. I mean, you got to be pretty sure that you're, like, in a bad situation before you drink your own pee. Or you're in Boy Scouts. I had to drink my own pee when I was in Boy Scouts. (laughs) Terrible choice. If you're in the Scouts and they're like, you need to drink this pee to get this merit badge, don't. 
end of discussion. Right. Um, <laughs> Kim just quietly was like, right, right. Gross. <laughs> um, also, I do think that it tells us uh, one really interesting thing about Annie, too, is that, like, she's not good at lying. Hmm. Because, like, my first rational lie is, oh, it was storming so badly, I pulled you out and I couldn't get you to the hospital, so I brought you here to take care of you because I'm a nurse and I know what to do. And then once the storm storms down, I'll take you into the hospital, knowing that that's not true. Right. But that's the first, like, easy lie that pops in my head. Like, so the fact that she's just blatantly like, oh, you were in a car crash, but I rescued you and I'm taking care of you now. And there's right. no lie. It's just, there's like, no lie. blatant honesty, right. like, right there. Right. And I think it's because she wants him to trust her very badly. Right. And I think, like, I think in her head there's just this idealized, like, he's going to wake up. He's going to be so grateful to me. And he's just going to, like, want to be my new husband. Like, I'm going to, like, basically bag Paul Sheldon because I saved his life. Exactly. And it does not go that way at all. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. And I think that's a fun little parallel to, like, a modern day. Like, so many people I know personally... I've fallen in love with someone. They don't even fall in love with that person. They fall in love with like an idealized version, or they fall in right, love with the idea, idea of, of falling in love with right. that person. And you know, that's obviously what Annie has done. She's not taking in consideration Paul Sheldon as a whole man. He smokes. He drinks. He's uh, you know he's definitely cheating on his wife sometimes. Like you know he's doing all these things which Annie would not like in no, any way. No. And so her first thought is like, well, I like all the rest of you. I'm just going to change those things. Right. And then immediately after, so he burns those pages. She starts, and she's like, let me finish this for you. She starts to burn them. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is, and it really shows that she has no forethought. Like, she doesn't think through her actions or, like, go forward, like, that far. Unlike Paul, who is constantly thinking 12 steps ahead. She lights all of this paper in the middle of this grill, and she's like, I have a place to burn it, so that's safe. But then... Heat rises, fire rises, it's lighter than air, so then all of these papers start flying up in the air, and she's just like, oh, goodness. And, like, she just, she has no, like, concept of just, like, thinking about her consequences. Right, right. You know, oh, my God, she could have just burned the house down Mm -hmm. and not a thing. And and it just didn't even remotely cross her mind that that would be something that could happen because she's burning... A manuscript in a grill She's in a bedroom. She's burning a, hundred, a couple hundred pieces of paper in the middle of a bedroom. Right. You right? know, because that makes sense. It's perfectly logical. But I think what's really interesting is the next chapter... Uh, oh, wait. That's not that's too far. Right? The next chapter is probably the first chapter that lasts more than two or three pages. Yeah. So, like, because you get, he, she comes in and she feeds him. And then, like, you know... But then we get into 22 and he can't sleep. And he's just sitting there high, and he starts thinking about his car. And, and what it goes happened. on for pages and, and it's pages. Like 10, 12 pages long of just him like trying to understand what happened, him processing what happened. And then the very last thing is six weeks, five, that could be the length of my life, Paul thought, and began shuddering. We spend, you know, it's only eight pages, but it's the longest stretch we've had, like uninterrupted so far. Right. And the yeah. entire thing is just him thinking about, like, his mortality. Right. He's the most coherent. He's just eating for the first time just, in a long time. Just eating for time. the first time in, you know, two and a half days. Mm-hmm. I think one thing too, like that we just kind of skipped over was when she's feeding him, uh, it's the first time that he gets really uh he really accepts how much he is needing of her. Because mm-hmm. he just goes from like, I'm not gonna eat that unto like choking it down because he's so hungry. Right. It goes on, and this is, pretty like, soon we're going to get to where he's tr- he's thinking that he needs to stop taking the pain pills. Mm-hmm. Because they're making him, but because, at the same time. But at the same time, he's so addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. I, I think that this he's is. He's addicted to Annie He's almost. addicted to Annie. Well, and I think, like, the nice thing is, though, is even, like, that addiction. And even when you're addicted to pills, you're addicted to alcohol or something. There's this little part of you that's, like, you know you're addicted. And right. you want to stop. So there's always that one little thought, and he does it really well here, where it's like, thank you, Annie. He said humbly and thought, your throat. If I can, I'll give you one chance to lick your lips and say goodness, but only once, Annie. Only once. And it's just like, even through the addiction of him needing her, him, her finally feeding him, her being there to give him his pain pills, 
he still is conscious and coherent enough to say, if I get the chance to end this, I will. Right. Like, no matter what, it will end. Right. Um, I just think that was, like, like, just him finally accepting his situation a little bit is an important, like, turning point in that part of the novel. Yep. And then we get into this real long stretch where he's just thinking about, like, somebody's going to find my book. Somebody has to be looking for me. Like, somebody has to know I'm missing. But, um, and then there's also the realization of who's looking for him. Because it's not his wife that he's been cheating on and treating terribly. She's well, probably... And, and he's, he's not even married anymore. They're his ex-wives. Oh, yeah, ex-wives. He's got two ex-wives, that he's you just know. Paying, and the only reason they're going to, like, Notice is because the alimony check yep. didn't come. You know, his his publisher may be looking for him, but, but probably isn't super worried yet. I mean, who's looking for him? Which I think is, is telling because he's so disconnected from other humans well, that he, nobody's, you know, he's got, there's this scary part in the back of his brain of, man, is anybody even looking for, is, has anybody even noticed that I'm gone yet? They might be looking for him in New York or in LA, but no one was looking for him in Sidewinder, Colorado. Right. That like that was a good sentence. I liked right. a lot. Well, I but think, in like, the spring, he's mm-hmm. got this this hope because you know his car couldn't have been that far off the road if Annie got got to him and got him out of it. So it's it can't be that far off the road. I really love this section though because it's the first time that he really goes into a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. with Paul. And I think it's because Paul's in a, a area. He's, he's, he's conscious. A, he's conscious, exactly. He's fully conscious. And like, I really just love the way that it is so fluid going through it. Mm-hmm. You know, one thought about Annie Wilkes wanting to destroy fast cars goes into her temper, goes into like, what happens if I make her mad again, goes into, do you think she'll be mad if someone finds my car? Into, somebody's got to find my car. Someone has to be looking for me. Mm-hmm. It's just very fluid, and it really does feel like just like your, synap- your synapses just firing off and remembering things one after another. But she had stolen a rare bird with beautiful feathers. A rare bird which came from Africa. Thinks a lot of himself, to say the least. <laughs> He's, he thinks he does, a lot of but himself. But at the same the time... Think about how we look at celebrities, regardless of what they're famous for. Yeah. You know, whether whether they think those things about themselves or not, think about how we think about celebrities. And, like there's and a idolization. There's a, there is. There's an idolization. And they're rare and unique, and they've got this talent, and oh my gosh, I could never do that. And because people noticed them. Yep. They don't necessarily have this super rare talent. They just happen to be in the right place at the right time. And and just because they know that, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily full of themselves. But... Do you think that's Paul, though? Do you think he is in... Do you think he was lightning in a bottle? Or do you think that he truly... Like, because the way it makes it seem to me is... Stephen seems to be drawing a good corollary between himself and Paul, mm-hmm. feeling especially like the trap and the addiction. But and I do think that Paul Sheldon has gotten to where he was not because of luck. I think he truly sees it as hard work and talent. Absolutely. And I think Stephen King would say the same thing about himself. And But I feel like with this book, like we talked about at the beginning, that this book was part of a two-book contract, and the other book of this contract was The Tommyknockers. We'll talk about that later. That was the one he just wanted to get out of the contract with, right? Yeah. He right. was just like, I'm done. So It's funny that he paired that one with this one then. Yeah. Because this yeah. one's a, this is an amazing novel. Like, and that one, one is not. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like that because he was in that situation and what he was going through in his personal life, he felt trapped. Like, I have to do this thing. I am forced to do this thing because of this contract. Mm -hmm. And yes, his writing is a passion for him. And many, many of his books are passion projects. And you get those emotions. You get those feelings from it. Mm -hmm. But then there's also this feeling of commitment and being trapped by his fame. Like what he well, said and being, he would right, do. and being trapped by his fame. Yeah, by his because own name. He wouldn't be in a multi-book contract with Unless Carrie or Salem's King. Lot, yeah. you know. But he had been putting out multiple novels a year 
for over a decade at this point. And so he was trapped by his fame. That was really just because it's almost like he, he was trapped by really his expectation, hard. like the expectation of, of others. others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Trapped by the expectation of others. Which is wild. Yeah. So. And I think that that's, huh. He's trapped by the expectations of Annie in the absolutely. beginning. Because she's expecting that, you know, she's not expecting Misery to die in the next novel that she's reading. So that, like, that's just already, like, what wild serendipitous timing. And I mean, that's the point of a novel, though, is that, right. like, if the timing of things didn't work out the way they would, there'd be no story to read. Right. You know, if Annie didn't happen to come along at that time, of course it's coincidental and it's like, wow, what a random happenstance. But, I mean, most good stories are based off of good coincidental timing right she is attracted to this idolized image of him based on what she reads in the misery novels because she probably is relating to him as like ian or jeffrey like this like grandiose romantic right 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 and and again this is the mid 80s and it's not like it is today there's not 52 social media platforms and and all of this look into the daily musings of celebrity like there are now so she probably doesn't know that he's been divorced twice and that he smokes and drinks and carries on and and all of those things and you know what's interesting is because she lives in the middle of nowhere and she's not that's not what she does it's not who she is it's really funny you say that because I'm just reading through this next part and then the next thing that Annie is talking about is uh, she brings back and she gets him a typewriter she gets him the royal which is becomes this is the gun that I was talking about exactly this exactly. is the like the royal's in the play now it has to be used in multiple ways like it has to be brought up it right. has to be a constant thing now um, and I think it's fun because he actually uses the royal to drive Paul even more insane slowly. Yeah. Um, to the point where he has to end up starting to write things longhand. Yeah. And I think that's, it's just really interesting. But going off of what you're talking about being divorced and everything, she literally says uh, about the woman that sold her the typewriter, well, as silly, she's bad. Dartmonger, her name ought to be Whoremonger, divorced twice, and now she's living with a bartender. Paul divorced twice and he was living in a hotel drinking a ton. Mm-hmm. It's like immediately like, yeah. Like, and so he, he cuts her off before she can even finish that thought because he's like, I don't want to like continue that path. I don't want to continue that avenue because it's not going to be good for me. Right. And right. like, he, again, that's self-preservation. He and like, knows. He even goes even further into it and uh, he starts, he smiled back. The tide was in, meaning his drugs were starting to kick in. Mm-hmm. That made both smiling and lying easier. Gave it to you. You mean you didn't dinker? Annie preened a little. I told her N was an important letter she allowed. Well, good for you. Damn. Here was a new discovery. Sycophancy was easy once you got the hang of it. Mm-hmm. Him leaning into that self-preservation. Him almost telling her that she did a good job. Like, right. she, he's proud of her. Like, giving her those little, like... It's reverse manipulation at this mm-hmm. point now, and he's actively trying to do it too. Right, absolutely. Um, I got bored. Cut size, paperweight, and he brings up the old comic strip, Ducky Daddles again, mm-hmm. constantly bringing up Ducky Daddles. Yeah. Just and I think what's interesting about this is like he's bringing up Ducky Daddles all of the time, and he's bringing up the episode plays all of the time. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that their childhoods are trash and that their childhoods are pretty much the reason for their trauma in their real life. And so Absolutely. it's funny. You know, it's not funny. It's obviously intentional, but it's interesting to me that from the moment that we're starting this novel, we're constantly ducky daddles and episode plays with my brother. And this is what happened to me as a kid. Because, I mean, I mean, trauma as a child is what pretty much makes you the person that you are. Yes. Um, and I think Stephen King was very aware of that, especially when he talked to the, what was her name, Dr. What's her, let's find out, Dr. Janet Ordway. She's a doctor of psychiatry. She probably was very aware of, like, that being something that, like, needed to be illustrated throughout the novel. But at the end of this, we kind of get the plot point of the whole book. And right. why she and uh, she says, "I don't think I know." You're going to use this typewriter to write a new novel, your best novel, *Misery's Return*. Right. So at some point in one day, she's gone from rescuing her favorite writer 
and finding out her favorite character is dead to going out and buying this typewriter and basically forcing him to make this new novel for her. Which makes well, me well, think that... Not, not one day. Like one week. No, I... I because she found out... Because she found out Misery was dead and that's why she went away. Oh, you're right. And so while she was there, while she was probably like... While she was there, like, she's like, how can I fix this? How can I make this yep, yep, yep. right in my little world? It doesn't matter what it is anywhere else, but in my little world, this is what I it I need to make this right. Right. This other trash manuscript needs to go away. So there's no focus so on there's, that. So that that's just gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And my favorite character has to come back. The reason why I exist. This is I live for. I live for misery. Mm-hmm. So she's got to come back. And how can I make this happen? So she does. Well, and I think it's interesting because then we get into, the, like, so far this would be the second longest stretch of, like, four pages uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. And it's just him trying to convince her that that's not the right idea. Right. And it's funny that he has such a strong sense of self-preservation, but then his sense of artistic creativity and artistic intuition takes over. And he is like, I don't care what you're trying to do. I'm not doing something artistically I don't want to do. Like, right. end of discussion. End of discussion. And she's but like, then nah, she's like, you are. Right. Like, pretty much. Like, that's what it is. It's a it's a power move. Like, no other for both of them. And, like, this is really fun to just see this power exchange. Mm-hmm. Him using his intelligence and his wiles. Her using the situation and her manipulation and her... Control. So, her control. Her control. And trying to make it, like, what she wants. But also truly having to accept at some points that she won't get it there. Mm-hmm. Like, unless she does it the things that I want. And then he has this little bit at the end, then don't do it, make her mad. She's like a walking bottle of nitroglycerin as it is. Bounce her around a little, make her explode. So he starts to toy with the idea of when she's calm, she's thinking. When mm-hmm. she's angry, I can take advantage of that. Right. And I think that that's like what he really remembers, foreshadowing towards the end, is in those more emotional moments is when he can take advantage and try to control the situation on his own. Yep. Yep. Um, That was interesting. The typewriter scares him at the beginning. Yeah. It freaks him out. It It makes him uncomfortable. And it makes me think that, one, it's always not good in my... It's never rewarding to be forced to do something. Right. So I feel like that's probably something about it, too. But I also feel like he's got to be scared that if he introduces normalcy into the situation, then he's going to be more comfortable in the situation. Right. And the situation is going to start to turn normal for him. But I think he also knows that there's no other way out of this unless he appeases Annie somehow. Yes. And he's got to write that novel for that. At this point, I kind of had, like, um, really thought that he was going to use the novel in a different way. Mm Mm-hmm. I really thought it was going to try to, like, it was going to start to be a little bit more of a manipulation tactic, and he was going to use the novel to manipulate Annie to do things for him. Yeah. And I thought that that would have been really clever and fun, but I really love the way that instead of doing that or using the novel as anything at all, it just ends up being, like, a piece of art that he wants to create. Exactly. To the point where he saves and makes sure that it's protected and safe Absolutely, at the end. At the end. So it's, like, it, it, it comes, I think, one, like, it probably, obviously, would have been the most the best-selling novel of all time. Good writing comes from a place of tranquility when you're able to recall strong emotions. So in those moments of him being so drugged up that he was actually calm and peaceful, he's able to recall the terror of Annie, like, sh- punching his chest and saying, stay alive. Mm-hmm. And, like, those moments without, like, all of the, like like heart stopping terror at the same time and I can only right. imagine like how powerful that has to be to have that sense of calm in the situation that is making you so scared yeah you know what I yep. mean absolutely I think that's and, really and, interesting and I think that him escaping into the book into writing the book his frontal focus is on writing the book but it allows the back of his mind to relax and and deal with all of the trauma back here in the back of his brain mm-hmm. of what's going on because the active part of his brain is doing something that's honestly something he loves he's a writer that's what he does and i think that like 
but we get into this next chapter too and like it's the first time he gets to like roll up to the window in the mm-hmm. wheelchair and it's two and a half pages of him just, just describing it looking at just the looking window. at the window at the snow at the barn at the animals at the vehicle it's quite literally two and a half oh, it's about almost two pages and then it gets to the point where he's so absorbed in what he sees that Annie notices it and says, I see you're admiring my Paul, uh, my barn, Paul. So just to go right into that, like he is so quick and absorbed in taking in information so that way he can immediately reprocess it later. Yes. And I think that that's like a really telling too about him is like, you know, he's really making sure he has all of the details because I think he knows eventually he's going to have to retell his story. Well, and I think that he also knows that if he's ever going to get out of this situation, he's going to need to know every every bit of detail that he can process, that he can see. And 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 I think and we get into this here in a little bit where he starts listening to her footsteps in the house. And so he's got a picture in his head of how the house is laid out you know he knows that she has to go up a flight of steps to get to her bedroom Mm -hmm. he knows that she takes so many steps to go to the bathroom because he hears the the right so and he knows that the living room sounds come from this way and the kitchen sounds come from that way like how at least she has a different like a big sized yard because of the riding mower right he knows that she has a barn and a farm animals so she has to have at least the space to provide for those animals like you know he has to like you're saying like he's just gathering all of these small clues because he knows knows with that sense of self-preservation that he has that he's going to need it he's going to need it um I think what I was just reading like ahead a little bit. The next like big chapter that like was really interesting is, and it's the first thing he says is, "I'd like some different paper if you could get it." Right, and it's and I it's mean, like, boy, like that's what you're gonna like try and do right now, like in the middle of everything. You're like, I want better paper. Yeah, and it's I mean, and and that's like a ten page chapter. Mm-hmm. So that is by it's far a, the longest. Well, and it's so interesting because it's like throughout all of it, he has. This is what he says, but here's a paragraph and a half of what I think. Uh, you ought to be, she said stonily. You might as well call yourself a whore. No, Annie, he thought, suddenly filled with fury. I'm no whore. Fast cars was not about being a whore. That's killing that blank, blank misery was about. Now that I think about it, I was driving to the West Coast to celebrate my liberation from a state of whoredom. And then he instead says, a good point. Now, going back to the subject of the paper, mm-hmm. so he's just really focused on making sure that, if nothing else, he's going to win the paper. Right. And I think that for him, it's that sense of, if I'm going to do this, I'm at least going to do it my way a little bit. Right. I I have to exert my control where I can, and this is the place that I can do yeah. it. And it's especially like, he even has the conscious thought that's like, she won't understand. So it's like, the reasons that I give her are going to be things that like, she'll just accept. Because she's never been in this position, she won't know. Right. Um, Which is really like, yeah. And he he takes the risk of making her angry, which he does, of course. And it's, it's terrifying because he knows that he has pissed her off. And she punches him in the knee. Mm -hmm. You know, the shattered knee. And she says, no, Paul. She moved to the door, then turned looking at him with a stony face. Her eyes, those tarnished dimes, were fully alive under the shelf of her brow. There's one thought I would like to leave you with. You may think you can fool me or trick me. I know I look slow and stupid, but I'm not stupid, Paul, and I'm not slow. And then out of nowhere, she runs across the room and punches his broken knee. And the broken knee, like, they go, like, he's for the last like 70 pages is just every time he mentions his leg he talks about how his knee is swollen to four times the size he doesn't know where his kneecap lives in his mm-hmm. knee anymore he can't bend it move it in any way because of how much it hurts and she comes over and punches it with all of her farmer might mm-hmm. and and she lives alone she takes care of all of her farm animals alone she takes care of all of the chores alone she is strong. Mm-hmm. You have to be strong Especially, to do those yeah, things. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think like 
So you just sit there, she said, lips pulled back in that grinning rictus, which is like, oh, that's some good syntax. I really enjoyed that. And you think about who is in charge here and all the things I can do to hurt you if you behave badly or try to trick me. You sit there and you scream if you want to because no one can hear you. No one stops here because they all know Annie Wilkes is crazy. Mm -hmm. They all know what she did, even if they did find me innocent. Mm Mm-hmm. What innocent woman talks like that? Right. What? Right. At one point, are you going to prison and you're like, oh, man, I am innocent, but they don't know what I actually did. Right. You're not innocent then. Right. (laughs) They think I got away with it. And they're right. Think about that, Paul, while I'm in town getting your cock-a-duty paper. Oof. But you know what else he does just in the very next chapter? He has her bobby pins. He's in the chair. He's mobile for the first time in who knows how long because there's really no time. And we also don't really know how long Far Sidewinder actually is. Right. Well, I think this is probably one of the scariest parts of the book for me, if I'm being honest, too. Yeah. Because over the course of the next, like, six chapters, she leaves to go get the paper He's in the wheelchair. He sees two bobby pins on the ground. And then we get treated to this little story of how when he was riding fast cars, he would talk to a cop who taught him how to pick locks. Mm -hmm. He taught him about locks. He taught him about these different things. And he decides, I can get through this lock with the bobby pin. I can do this. So he goes up to the the lock. He tries to get into it. And there, he breaks off the first bobby pin, and mm-hmm. he loses a piece of it inside of the lock. Then he gets the second one, and he jimmies it open. The uh, door opens. He tries to go out, and he realizes the wheelchair is too big. Mm-hmm. So he tries to... Uh, and that's the first act break, immediately. Yeah. Because at the end, he was squeezing through barely by positioning himself squarely in the doorway and then leaning forward. The axle cap squalled against the wood, but he was able to get through. After he did, he grayed out again. Yeah. Which means that he did all of that, opened the locked door that this woman that has been doing all of these things to him, left it open, barely got into the hallway. He's, I imagine in my head, he's like in the hallway, the like hubcaps of the wheels are past it, but his wheels mm, are, are still, still like in partly doorway. in the doorway. Yeah. And he just passes out because of the pain. Like and, and the exertion, and the because exer- he's been laying in a bed for however long. That's more than long. he's done in so long, yeah. Right, for however long it's been. Because we don't know how long it's been. Mm-mm. The only time that we know for certain that has passed is that 51 hours. That's the only thing that's quantified. Everything else is just kind of this vague passage of time. A time. It's like the next evening or that next day or right. sometime and, later. But is it the next day? It's really you know, just Or like, has he slept through another day because he's yep. so doped up? You know, it's he perceives it's the next day. So then he gets out and we get treated to the longest chapter so far. Yes. Which is him. Uh, he grays out. And then he has this really scary dream where he hears Annie coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, I shouldn't have said it was a dream. Then he has this really scary moment where he hears Annie coming and she has a shotgun. And she says, if you want your freedom so badly, Paul, I'll be happy to grant it to you. She pulled back both hammers. He jerked expecting the shotgun blast and realized it was a dream. Mm -hmm. So while he grayed out, he had a nightmare about Annie, wakes back up in the hallway, and then still decides, I'm going to keep exploring. Yeah. And it's instead of going back, instead of like listening to his dream and like what his subconscious is so terrified of, he perseveres through it, pushes out, goes out. And I think he goes down the hallway to the bathroom first or no, he goes to the parlor first because he sees the phone and he sees like the iceberg, the penguin on the iceberg, which is like the ice cube, Mm -hmm. which is such a big thing later on. Yeah. And then after he goes to the parlor, he decides like he doesn't want to try the phone because he doesn't know what he would say. He doesn't know how to like do like what he doesn't know where he's at. He does no idea where he's at. No idea. So. He goes back to the bathroom and he opens the cupboard and he finds all of the drugs. Yep. And this is the first chance that we really realize that Annie did have some kind of medical career before this. She said she was a she nurse, said, but but like now we have a little bit more like physical proof for Paul. Mm-hmm. She has an entire cupboard filled with samples and stolen goods from hospitals 
And it's not just like this Norville drug either. It's like she has penicillin. She has random like fever drugs. She has pain pills. She has antidepressants. Like yeah, she's got everything. Everything. She's like a, she she's even got has her like own morphine and hypodermic needles and like all of these things. Um, he gets the he gets real excited and just starts messing with the entire cupboard and takes the boxes. Halfway through this, he realizes that she is probably OCD enough that she definitely is going to know exactly how those boxes are placed. So he struggles and stumbles and tries to put them back in place. And he thinks he does a good job, but he ends up taking five of the packages. He rolls back, and like this entire time, it's getting like this is one of my favorite parts of the book, too. Mm-hmm. Just it's because so good. The intensity. It's so intense because it's like he's talking about, like, ah, I'm seeing all these boxes. But then at the same time, in the back of his head, he's like, you need to go back to your room. If she comes back right now, you will die. You have to go back to your room. And just like, but I, but I need the drugs. But I need the drugs. But I, and need, I the drugs. need to know more, and I need information, and I'm a curious cat, and you know, curiosity kills the cat. And he eventually gets back into his room, and he gets in there, and he gets back into bed, and he grays out. And the next thing that ends the book, or at the end, that this part is, he just hears the Cherokee pull up, and her come in, and she doesn't do anything, and he says he thinks he must have got away with it. Yeah. It's such a foreshadowing sense it lulls you into a false sense of security foreshadowing he even comes back he's already taken pain pills at this point too she's come back sooner than he thought and now he has to pretend to be hurt and she's like do you want me to get you into your thing and she's like oh could you just it hurts so much my knee mostly where you uh where you lost your temper i'm not ready to be picked up yet right he's not in any pain anymore he's already taken all those pills and then it's also, he doesn't want to get picked up because he still has the pills in his underwear, in his underwear. at that moment. Right, yep. So he's yep. just like, don't pick me up. I need to hide these pills first. And he comes up with it. But then at the same time, he's able to manipulate Annie and guilt her into what she did when she lost control. And I think that's probably one thing that Paul does that is not good, in my opinion. Because I am sure, I'm actually positive, that Annie's life has been nothing but people guilting her. And manipulating her because of her choices and actions. Yep. And that's something I really like, under, like, feel like, you know, that's very relatable about Annie. You know, it's like if you make a bad choice or a mistake or something, like, there are people in the world and in your life that just will not let will you ever not forget let you about forget it. That, yeah. And will guilt you about it. And, like, I'm sure in that moment she felt like, you know, she probably didn't feel like it was a mistake in any way. Because, you know, she's talking about it because she's exerting her control. She's mm-hmm. showing him, like, I am in control in this moment. You have nothing. And I think that's very telling. Wow. Be sure to like us on Facebook at First Time Through Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at First Time Through. You can even become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash first time through to get exclusive content and really fun communication. I can just cut that out, thankfully. Also, if you have any general concerns, questions, comments, or if you have your own little piece of Stephen King trivia, please, please email it to us at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you have to say. First Time Through is produced by Empty Theater Productions. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.